I do love the Advent season for a number of reasons. Uh, one, very near the top of the list, is the joy of participating in a really faithful and generous community that you've heard time and again that every December we give every dollar away and it was born out of an attempt to worship the coming of Jesus in a way that would delight his heart. We wanna celebrate his birthday in ways that he would say, ah, this, this is my heart, the care for the impoverished, setting them free in my name. And so I, uh, I just wanna say thank you for the ways that you're participating with us as we're leaning in to care for these little ones. We're preaching through a series called No More Gloom, envisioning what would it look like for light to break into darkness? What would it look like for the Messiah whose name, as we're gonna see this morning, is Everlasting Father, to be proclaimed in ways that little children in Accra, Ghana could receive in ways that they've, they've never been able to in quite that way. And so I just wanna to continue to encourage you to lean in with us this season. We have set a somewhat outrageous goal of together as a family raising $750,000 in the month of December that will go to tending to these children. And so I just encourage all of you to consider and to prayerfully lean in. What would it look like to be a community that stretches in generosity this December for the sake of those kiddos? And this morning, what we are doing is we're looking at what does it mean that God, through the Messiah, was displaying that he is an everlasting father. And so as we pray that God would prepare our hearts for this text and for that work, we're gonna ask that no more gloom would be the story that we're rehearsing together. So if you would join with me in prayer and let's, let's dig in. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that in Jesus, light dispels darkness. And that where there was gloom and sadness and a sense of being stuck or a feeling of worthlessness, that into that space, the love and the light of Jesus shines brightly. I pray for any of my brothers and sisters today that feel stuck, for any that have been tempted to feel like their life doesn't have value, worth, and beauty. I pray that today as we see you, Jesus, revealing the love of the everlasting Father, that you would restore us, encourage us, bless us. You're welcome in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The voice of a father carries great weight, does it not? So much is shaped by what is said or what goes unsaid. One of my favorite memoirs that I've ever read is one called Open, written by Andre Agassi, the great tennis champion. And what's so interesting about this memoir is that the premise of this book by Andre Agassi is that he hates tennis. One of the greatest tennis players of, of, of all time despises tennis. And he talks about how he's hated it since he was a kid, but he became this champion. And it, it kind of creates this question as a reader of how is this possible? And what slowly begins to emerge is that the voice of the father helped shape it. That when he was six or seven years old, his dad built a machine that he called the beast that would spit out tennis balls rapidly. And Andre had to hit 10,000 balls a day. And he was in his backyard on this kind of homemade court with the beast shooting out balls. And his father would stand behind him and say, swing harder, Andre, swing harder. 
And he, for hours, at six and seven years old, would do that. And he tells the story that when he was 13 or 14, he remembers being in the backyard with the beast shooting balls at him, and there he was, swinging. And he heard, swing harder, Andre. But his dad wasn't there. He said, all of a sudden it dawned on me that my dad didn't have to be present for me to hear that voice anymore because it had become my voice. And it was in reading that book that I realized the voice of the father carries this enormous weight because the truth is what is said or sometimes what is unsaid slowly becomes melded with the inner monologue. It is the voice that begins to shape how we think about ourselves, how we, how we live and move and have our being. And it's into that place this morning that we rejoice in this reality, that there is a Messiah that is heralded in Isaiah 9, a Messiah with multiple names who has come and his light dispels gloom and darkness. And the third title that we're exploring together this morning is Everlasting Father. We're going to explore the realities that in the Messiah, we have access to something that is everlasting. It means eternal, without end, unchanging. It always delivers. And the thing that is being delivered is the love, the affection, the provision of a father. It's being revealed in such a way that there is no more gloom. The light breaks in. There is a new voice that shapes our identity and our direction in and through this one. What we're gonna see is that to all who feel stuck, to all who feel worthless, the affection of the unending Father, the eternal and everlasting Father is shed abroad in our hearts through His Son. And we're gonna explore that together this morning. So first, to those who feel stuck, let me show you in Isaiah 9 that the audience that was receiving this original encouraging word was a group that felt stuck. And I believe that the title, Everlasting Father, was particularly crafted to help them understand how the Messiah was going to meet them in that space. Isaiah 9 and verse 1, let me direct your attention back there. I want you to pay special attention to the word anguish in this first verse in this text that we've been exploring all month. It says this, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This term anguish that's used of God's people in this setting is the term in Hebrew musak, and it literally means straight or narrow or cramped or stuck. It's this idea of unable to move, wedged in. The image that comes to mind for me is the image of a straight jacket. You know, this kind of old Somewhat, it's like a torture contraption, right? It was designed and used in years past in mental institutes, trying to keep those that might be a danger to themselves or to others bound up. But what I, from what I understand, I've never thankfully been in a straitjacket. But from what I understand is that the frustration, the exhaustion, the overwhelming nature of it is that the more you fight against it, the more stuck you feel. As you pull and wedge, it feels like you're being, you're kind of, you're being hemmed in in such a way that makes you feel like you're losing touch with reality. 
I've never been in that, but I am the youngest of four children with two older brothers, so I know what it is to be pinned down, uh, tortured in its own right. Maybe too much information, but I'll tell you this, one of my brother's favorite pastime was to, was to pin me down where they put the knees on the shoulders and hold the hands, and then they would, they would spit, and they'd see how close they could get it to my face and then suck it back up. It's the joys of being the youngest child. That's torture. I would scream, no, no, no! And sometimes gravity was just too strong. I've got my own stuff I gotta work out, you know? But that feeling of like, I can't do anything about this, I'm stuck, I'm bound up, I, I am overpowered. This, this is who Isaiah is writing to, a people in anguish that have found themselves in a straight place, an inability to move. The Israelites were experiencing the stranglehold of the Assyrians that were growing in power and that were surrounding them and cutting off their connections to the world in a way that they felt like they were being hemmed in more and more. They were in danger and they needed a father who would show up like a redeemer. Later in Isaiah, in chapter 63, verses 16 through 19, we have that same phrase, Father, used. And you see the way that the people in their stuck state need a father to provide. It says, for you are our father, through Abraham, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people. Your holy people held possession for a little while, and our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. You see the people in moments where they felt hemmed in and anguished, knew that they needed a father because a father came with the love and affection that could redeem, that could purchase back, that could save. And so Isaiah is speaking to a people that feel stuck and introducing to them the realities of an everlasting father. At the outset, I want to ask a question of you. Have you been in the place recently to pray a, a straight jacket prayer? One of those where you just feel stuck. Maybe you're feeling it today. Maybe you felt it recently. Maybe you're walking alongside someone that feels it pointedly. I've walked with friends who have dealt with sexual sin in an ongoing way that feel like I keep straining for freedom, but the more in my flesh that I try to not do this, I just feel more and more stuck. Or friends that are struggling in a marriage that feels like it's just sideways and all of our communication is bitter and angry and the more that we try to fix it, the more that we feel like it's crumbling in our fingers, we just feel stuck. Have you been in that place where you've offered a prayer and you're like, I don't know what else to pray other than like, I need out, I need help. I remember when I was a junior in high school, uh, my brother, who was at the University of Alabama, drove home through the night and arrived on a Saturday morning. He was in our living room when we woke up. His hair was disheveled. It looked like he hadn't slept in days. 
And I was the only one living at home at this point. My parents and I woke up and came in and he sat us all down and he said, I need help. Um, this, this girl that I've just started dating is pregnant. It was not what we intended. I don't know what we're gonna do. He said it through tears. He said it through shame. He said it through a sense of feeling really, really stuck. It was a formative moment for me because I sat there next to my parents and as the words were coming out of his mouth from across, my dad leapt off of the couch and rushed towards him and held him as we all cried. And I watched this moment recognizing that in the places we feel stuck, what we need more than anything else, we need the Father. We need the love of the Father that says, I will be with you in this. You see, this was a people that feels like they're strapped into the straitjacket of their own decisions and their own sin. They're stuck. And what they need is a word about the everlasting Father. But they don't just feel stuck. They're experiencing a sense of worthlessness. They feel worthless. It, the word in verse one for contempt, look back, it says, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those were the northern territories that were carried away first by the Assyrians. And he says in former times, this land that experienced this stranglehold, this sense of feeling stuck, felt like they were worthless. The word for contempt literally means light or unimportant, unvaluable, like something that could just blow away in the wind because it has no density or value. And he says this people that felt stuck started to experience a, a sense of worthlessness. This word is used throughout the Old Testament in several different moments that kind of help us fill in that experience. You may remember the story of Sarai who was unable to get pregnant and so Abram took his handmaiden Hagar and had a baby with her. It says right after Hagar got pregnant and had a baby that she looked on Sarah with contempt. She started to look at her and go, you're not a real woman. You can't deliver the way that I could deliver for your husband. She treated her as worthless. Or Michal, we heard about Michal looking out at David when he's dancing in the streets, and she looked on him with contempt. She said, you're not acting like a king, you're acting like you're worthless, you're not wearing your king, kingly robes. Or when David was run out of town, when Absalom turned the people against him, there was a, name, a man named Shimei who cursed him, and he threw dust in the air, and he called down curses, and he said, you're worthless. You couldn't lead your home, your son is turned against you, and you can't lead the land, you're not worthy to be king, you're worthless. And in that moment, David said, maybe he's right. He was so broken. He was feeling that way. And in our most direct context, the other place where this word has been used was in the verses just before this in chapter 8 and verse 21, where it says this. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they will turn their face upwards. You see, this is how the people have treated God. They said, you're not worth anything because we don't know if you can deliver. There is a sense in which a people that have turned their hearts against God, believing that he is worthless, begin to themselves plunge into a place of feeling like their lives don't have value. This is the context within which these people find themselves. 
The danger for those that have an Andre Agassi dad or have a voice that's come, maybe not by way of a father, but by way of a system or a, or a situatedness, that it always feels like my worth is dependent upon my performance. How well I strike the ball, if I swing harder, if I accomplish, if I end up on top. The struggle in that sort of space where that's the voice that's shaping our identity is that when you, when you hit the ball, when you get the win, when you get cherished, the chest is out, you're ready to receive the praise because I have fulfilled all that I was supposed to be, but life is lived on a razor's edge. Because when you don't, and that's the voice that drives you, you're left feeling like, then I'm worthless. If what I exist to do is to swing harder and to win, or to accomplish, or to get the job, or to get the praise, and it didn't come my way, then who am I? And the truth is, the feelings of worthlessness often flood in behind the anguish. Where you feel stuck in something by your own making, the decisions that you have made that have come home to roost, and all of a sudden you start to go, I feel stuck, and I don't have anybody to blame but me. It's often there where feeling stuck leads to feeling worthless, leads to feeling stuck, leads to feeling worthless, and the spiral moves on. This is who Isaiah is speaking to. This is the sort of people who desperately need a Messiah. And he speaks a better word to them. You see, we've been exploring verses six and seven, trying to see them in their context and to slowly spin these verses to see all of the beauty and the way that they dispel the gloom of the human experience lived east of Eden. And what I want you to hear in this moment is the way that in verse six, everlasting father would have burst onto the scene for a people who felt stuck and who felt worthless. He says this in verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This idea of Everlasting Father being attributed to the Messiah causes some to ask the question, well, aren't we talking about the Son? Why would the Son be called the Father? I think in part, Isaiah 22 and verse 21 helps us answer, answer that question, because there what you see is that father is a word that is used of the king, the leader. Isaiah 22, 21 says this, I will clothe him with your, with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. This is the idea of someone in an office of leadership or authority being entrusted with that authority so that they can function as a father for the community. And someone who's stepping into that role is saying, I'm gonna provide for you. With affection and care, I'm gonna give you what you need. I will be a father in this place. The Messiah taking on the title Everlasting Father is displaying the love of the Father that has so loved the Son, and He's stepping in and He's providing it as a king and a caretaker for His people. Which raises the question, how has this Son, this Jesus, this one that was born, how did He experience the love of the Everlasting Father? 
There's lots of things that we could point to, but I'd like to just posit this. What did it sound like for the son to hear the voice of his father? What did that sound like? Do you know that there's two moments where the father speaks clearly and directly to the son where he can hear him and others can hear him? Do you remember these stories? The first is Matthew chapter three, as Jesus was baptized. And as he was coming up out of the water, we, we read that the, the sky parted, the dove descended, and the father spoke over his son. And what did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then several years later, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the inner circle, John and James and Peter, they all go up on this mountain and Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus is in radiant glory. His clothes are like lightning and everybody is stunned and Peter speaks before he thinks because that's just kind of the way he rolls. And what he says is, oh, this is good. What we should do is we should build three tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And while he's speaking, the father interrupts him. He's like, shh, 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 Peter, stop it. What does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What's so interesting is that in the two moments where the father speaks distinctly and directly to the son and lets the community hear, he's saying the exact same thing. This is the sense that you get. It's what he's always saying. It's like we're getting to peel back the veil and experience a little bit of what the relationship between the father and the son looked and felt like. And what you, what you get the sense of as a reader is that the father has so postured himself towards the son that the baseline of his communication is, I delight in you. Like you're beloved and I'm pleased in you. And you get the sense that for eternity past, this has been the nature of their relationship and that we and these little blips on the radar just get it kind of poking through where we say, oh, there it is. The father's posture towards the son is, you are beloved. I'm pleased with you. And the beautiful reality is that Jesus comes to the culmination or the, 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 the conclusion of his ministry. And in a place like John 14 and verse 7, what he says to those that have been walking with him is that if you have seen me and you've experienced me, you have seen and know the Father. He says, I have been revealing the Father to you. You see that in the Messiah, we're coming to know what the everlasting Father is like. And Jesus came to help us understand the love and the commitment of the Father to those that are his. Okay. If we're reading closely and we're thinking deeply about everlasting Father and the way that the Father was postured towards the Son, it should cause us to ask a question. How is it possible, how is it possible that Jesus, who had the the voice of the Father ringing in his ears and postured towards him for all of eternity past, you are beloved and I am pleased with you. How is it that he ended up pinned to a tree? How is it possible that he ended up stuck? Stuck to a tree and being treated as worthless, being spat upon and disregarded like he was weak and not valuable. How did he end up there? 
Would you direct your attention with me to Isaiah chapter 53? 53 verses 10 and 11. This is what we read. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some translations say he was pleased to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he sees his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Do you see the same prophet speaking under the authority of the Spirit later on and articulating the way that the Messiah will be a suffering servant says this, it was his anguish that was accomplishing our righteousness, our welcome. You see, how could this be? The Father was willing to do this. He was willing to wound the Son so that we could be welcomed as his children. You see, Jesus absorbed the wrath of sin and was buried. And then in his resurrection and his ascension to the throne, he was able to pour out his Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, 15 tells us this, that we have not received a spirit of fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption so that as children, as sons and daughters, we can cry, Abba, Father, listen, the good news that is bound up in the coming of Christ is this. He was stuck and treated as worthless so that you would never have to be. He was pinned to the tree and spat upon so that in his resurrection and his ascension, he could pour out the spirit on you and me and the word over our lives perpetually is your beloved. And in you, I am well pleased. Friends, where you feel stuck, and we all feel it at times, where you feel worthless, for each moment where we find ourselves into these kind of cul-de-sacs of pain and sadness that we have created, friends, for every look at your pain, for every look at your suffering, for every look at those spots where you feel stuck and worthless. We direct our eyes to the manger. We direct our eyes to the cross. We direct our eyes to the king on the throne and we receive the good news that you are beloved. You see, the voice of the father determines a great deal. And as you rehearse the voice of the father, what begins to be the case is this. It becomes your inner monologue. It becomes the thing that shapes your identity. And in Jesus, what you need to hear is this. The voice is clear. The identity is secure. You're not stuck, you're free. You're not worthless, you're cherished. You're the beloved and he is well pleased in you. You see, there's no more gloom of feeling stuck and worthless in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, 
Gracious God and Father, we bless you and we thank you for the good news that is bound up in the little manger. The baby that was bursting onto the scene and reshaping the way that we see the world. We are a people prone to wonder. We are a people prone to being stuck and feeling worthless. Here's my request, God. By your spirit, would you unplug our ears? Would you open our hearts and help us to receive the good news of the gospel? Help us not to reject or to block your voice, but to receive it in Jesus. To admit that we are stuck and we can't fix it. But to experience in Jesus the freedom and the fullness that he's purchased for us. We love you and we thank you. We pray that in that freedom, we would celebrate you in this Christmas season. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.